It's been a strong morning so far, and we're going to transition now into digging in the scriptures. Something we seek to do every single week is really go deep into uh, the scriptures. We, we fully believe that the scriptures are the words of God, that they are living and active. And so every time we gather like this, uh, we expect for God to move through his scriptures in our hearts. And this is week two of the Advent season, as I've said already. Uh, we love Christmas. It is the happiest season of all. Uh, There's a ton of smiles, ton of holiday cheer. It's a season known for peace and for unity and for harmony and for, for, for joy, even though a lot of that can come across as really artificial. It is known for that. But the reality is that right now in our nation, there is a lot of conflict. And right now in our nation, there's a lot of pain. And so before I jump into our pastoral prayer, which is typical at this point in the gathering, I think it's important for me uh, to mention what's happening in, with Ferguson and what's happening uh, in, in New York. And so I've decided to, to shorten my sermon a bit this morning and just take some time on the front side before we pray uh, to just draw our attention to, to all that is happening. You know, God in his grace has developed our, our new church into being a, an ethnically diverse church. A lot of skin colors, a lot of nations represented here, and I know it's, it's very, very rare uh, for churches to, to be diverse, and uh, we just think it's a sign of God's favor. Uh, we think it's a sign of God's grace on us. It's an opportunity for us to show to our city uh, the life-changing, unifying power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so uh, today, as we uh, continue on in our journey through the book of Luke, which will take us a very, very long time, uh, today I, I want us to, to remember that in the book of Luke and in the, the, the context that we're looking at, racism was a very, very real issue then. Uh, and, and, and it was racism between Jews and, and Gentiles. Uh, the Jews had grown to hate the, the, the Gentiles. And, and for some, their, their morning prayers even looked like this. Dear God, thank you that I am not a Gentile. And, and if, a, if a Jewish person went on to to marry a Gentile, sometimes it was known that the Jewish family, rather than throwing a wedding, would throw a funeral saying, you are dead to me, my child. You are, you are dead to me. And so fast forward through that into the life of Jesus, into the, the cross. Jesus dies for our sins. He resurrects to life. He, he then appears for 40 days. And you notice in the scriptures, while he's appearing for those 40 days, he starts to talk about the nations. He starts to talk about all the nations of the world. He says, I command you to go and make disciples of all what? Of all nations, of all ethnos. And so he, he, he then ascends to heaven and, and persecution becomes so heavy, so hot on Jerusalem that the Christians, many of them, most of them were, were forced out. They scattered. It was another diaspora out of the, the city. And God starts to do something crazy that was unexpected to many of them. He starts to save non-Jews. He starts to get a hold of the lives and the hearts of Gentiles. And so now people start to wonder, can God save Gentiles? Is that okay, God? I'm going to decide if it's okay for you to save Gentiles. And so what do they do to determine, is it okay for you to be doing this, God? What do they do? They call a meeting. They have a little committee meeting. Acts chapter 15, we have the Jerusalem council, and they get together And they talk about this. Okay, there's non-Jews 
coming to know Jesus, being full of the Holy Spirit, doing things that are evidence of the Holy Spirit. And so their, their determination is, okay, if God is doing it, I guess it's okay. So, so Gentiles, you are in. And so what happens from there then is that our faith just explodes on a global scale. I mean, it just goes crazy. It just blows up. Why? It happens because Jews and Gentiles somehow, after all this hatred, all this animosity, Jews and Gentiles start to live as family. They start to gather together in homes. They start to share meals together. People who once hated each other are now loving each other very well. And the world could not refute the change that was happening. And they decided this life change is evidence of the resurrection of Jesus. And so those of us who are really into apologetics, we get all excited about apologetics, and I think we should. You know what is even more effective than than careful apologetics where you defend the faith? What's even more effective is when you, in your life, show great unity with other Christians. They will know them by their what? By their love for one another. They will know that we are in fact changed by Jesus by our love for one another and the world could not refute that. And so listen, one of the best things that we church can do in this season of turmoil is sit across the table, white and and black, as family. It's one of the best things that we can do. And so into this world of racism, and now it's starting to break down, God gives us Ephesians chapter 2, and it closes the door for any hint of racism that was left over at all uh, with Ephesians chapter 2. Listen to uh, 11 through 19. I just want to read it to you. This is so, so good. Paul says to the church at Ephesus, he says, therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, which was a derogatory term, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at uh, that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant promises, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, And peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. That you are no longer strangers and aliens. But you are fellow citizens with the saints. And members of the household of God. And so he notices that there is very real separation. Even after even after the council, even after all that God has done, there's still some separation. 
And he says, listen, let me just kill it right now. There is no room for separation between the races. He says, that distinction is gone. That distance between you is gone because Jesus has shed his blood. Jesus died for all. He says, Jesus broke down the dividing wall of hostility. So there is no longer Jews over here, Gentiles over here. There is no longer whites in the front of the bus, blacks in the back of the bus. There is no more of of that, right? In fact, he says there is no longer Jew, uh, Gentile, which for us means there's no longer black or white, Latino or or Asian, Islander or, or Easterner. He says, instead, Jesus makes us what? He says one man. Literally, Jesus makes us one new race. And so, our church fights so desperately to maintain and to pursue continually diversity. And, and from time to time, people will say something like, Josh, why not just let people drift? You know, It's easy to hang out with people who are just like you. Latino, Latino, and let's just have a Latino church. White and white, we'll just have a white church. Black, black, we'll just have black gospel church. Asian, Asian, we'll just connect together. We share the same heritage. We'll just have a college student only church. We'll just have uh, parents of preschoolers church. We'll have singles and singles. We'll have older and older. We'll have the young hip professionals all in one church together. Why don't we just do that? It's just natural for us to, to drift towards homogenous units. Why do we fight against it? Even though it's most comfortable for us to hang out with people who are like us, share similar experiences. We fight against it because it's our opportunity to display to the world the unifying power of the gospel of Jesus. Even if we have nothing else in common, we have everything in common in Jesus Christ. And so church, we've got to fight for it. We've got to fight for it because if we don't fight and we don't intentionally work towards this, we we just drift. So, what is the hope for us in this national season of, of strife? The hope for us is the gospel. It's the gospel. There's a lot of opinion out there, but the hope is the, the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace. And so our hope is Jesus. We sing about peace on earth and mercy mile. In this season, it's, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. And so here's what I want to do. I want to pray together as a church. I want to just go before the throne together and plead with God to bring about peace. And, and don't just take it as me praying, but you pray with me. Right? Let's affirm. Let's amen this. We're, we're praying and pleading with God for peace. And so would you close your eyes and let's go to God. Father, we pray for peace. We pray that you would use this situation that is ridden with sin and depravity to expose our nation's brokenness and our sin. Or would you move us now towards peace? God, we long for heaven. You tell us in Revelation 7, that there will be a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing together 
before the throne, before the Lamb. We're clothed in white. We're not identified by how we dress. We're clothed in white, and we together in unison are crying out, salvation belongs to the Lord. One voice. And God, with that certain future in view, we pray, as Jesus told us to pray, that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want that here, God. We want unison here, unity here. One voice here. Bring it to earth. Bring peace. May believers be the picture of unity in the midst of disunity so that people will believe that Jesus is Lord. God, we pray for churches in and around Ferguson, in and around Staten Island. May they stand firm in the gospel. We pray for churches all around the nation that this would be an opportunity to proclaim the hope that is in Jesus Christ alone. May we all fight for peace. And Lord, we pray for our government, we pray for our leaders, for our justice system. Please bring wisdom. We know that you are concerned with justice. So we commit this to you, Father. God, we pray for those people, those family, those friends who are closely associated with all who are involved here. Bring them healing. Bring them hope. And finally, Lord, we pray that what the enemy means for evil, you will turn it for our good and for your glory. And so, God, we commit these things to you, trusting that you are good and you're going to do something good from this. Commit it to you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, let's not stop praying for that, okay, church? We're going to keep praying for that hard. You can go ahead now and turn to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1 will be in verse 39 and, and beyond this morning. Uh, we have scriptures on the screen. If you have a Bible, we have some floating around here for you. Uh, this is week four in our journey through the book of Luke, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the life of Jesus according to Luke. And again, week two in our Advent season. You know, for, for some of us, Christmas really is the hap- happiest season of all. You just love it. I love it. But for many of us right now, Christmas is just heightening the pain that you're feeling. You know, that's true for, for many of us. While some of us are thoroughly enjoying the Christmas season, uh, many of us are having a really hard time. I'm, I'm aware of that. Because here's what happens around the holidays especially this, this month-long holiday that we, we're now in, what happens is, is our issues get magnified in this season. See that? It's not just an issue that you're living with, but it's an issue that just gets magnified during this season. You put like a magnifying glass on it. And so if it's uh, financial issues, well, Christmas and, and shopping and all the expenses are, are really, really evident in the midst of the Christmas season because... Maybe your kids aren't getting as much as, as other people are or you can't fly because you can't afford it to go be with family. And so your financial issues get magnified. For, for those of us who are stressed out, it's, it's magnified during the, 
during the Christmas season. We you know, have all these parties and activities and deadlines and expectations uh, to accomplish for the holiday season, and it gets magnified. For those of us who have lost a loved one, this season is, is, is really, really difficult for, for you uh, because maybe it's your first time in this season with, without them, or maybe it's just a reminder of all the things that you once did uh, together. If it's a broken relationship, I know it, it gets really difficult, whether it's a, a broken relationship, a breakup, a divorce, a, a severed relationship with a child, and they're not around this season, that can be really, really, really difficult. If, if you're longing for companionship, uh, you, you feel it, especially in the, in the holiday seasons when you feel like you're going through it alone. If, if you're depressed, it's magnified because everybody else around you is joyful and you just can't seem to shake your depression. You feel worse. But our, our issues, they just, they, they become bigger issues for us in, in the Christmas season. And, and here's what I want to propose for us this week. I, I propose that if Christmas does some magnifying for us, let's let it be a telescope Christmas and not a microscope. Christmas. Now let me explain that a little bit. A microscope takes something small and makes it big. A, a telescope takes something big and, and makes it small and you can, you can actually see it and, and, and look at it more, more clearly. And, and listen, uh, my challenges and, and, and your challenges, as, as real as they are, know that they are small in light of eternity. That we will get through this. Like Revelation uh, 7 says, as we read earlier, we have that to look forward to. Like Revelation 21.4 says that, that, that Jesus is going one day to wipe away every tear from our eyes and death will be no more. Neither will there be uh, mourning or crying or pain anymore. It's going to be gone. And so our pain today that we're feeling in light of that is, is really small. But what we tend to do is we tend to put a microscope on those small things and make it big. Whether it's the holiday seasons or, or any other time of the year. Don't we do that? You focus in on the, the pain that you're, you're feeling. And, and like a scientist of suffering, you, you study it closely. You stare at it and, and you break it apart. And you consume yourself like a lab rat, right? With, with your issue and my proposal to us this morning is that if we're going to look into any lens we look into the lens of a of a telescope right that we marvel at this big God who has become small this big God who has who has become an infant a, a child inside of the the womb and so this season let's let's be like an astronomist that's that's looking into the skies let's have our heads up not down this season that is that is my proposal because when we look down and we look at the hurt we just we just magnify it more and more we just stare at it and we get our eyes off of Christ and we need to fix our eyes on Jesus Fix our eyes on Jesus. That's why he commands us, Philippians chapter 4, 8, uh, the scriptures will tell us whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything excellent, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Think about these things. And, and, And that's exactly what Mary, the mother of Jesus, is going to do as we see 
today. Last week we saw Mary visited by the angel Gabriel. And he comes and he announces to this young girl somewhere around the ages of 12, 13, 14, 15, 16. Young middle school girl, early high school girl. He says that you, yes, you from this no-name town of Nazareth, you are going to carry the long-awaited Messiah. Despite your virginity, you will bear the Christ child. It's going to be an amazing miracle. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. You will conceive. And her response was, I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. And then the angel departs. She says, my purpose on this earth is to live for the Lord. And so whatever you want, I'm in. Let's pick up now in Luke 1.39, continuing on. Watch how Mary does this. It says, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So, after Mary is visited by the angel Gabriel, and she receives the news about her cousin Elizabeth, her relative Elizabeth, who is older and barren and without child, she finds out that she is now pregnant and that Mary herself would have a child, what does she do? She rushes to see her cousin into the hill country of Judah. And her trek will do several things we can, we can speculate. One, it hides Mary from the difficulty and the shame that she would have faced in Nazareth. Yeah, sure, right. Yeah, you're a virgin. I really believe that. You think Jesus, the Messiah, would come into all town, of all towns to, to Nazareth, to our no-name podunk town i think he'd be going to a a princess or or a queen but not here are you are you are you crazy there's a lot of shame back in nazareth it would have protected her from the shame getting her out of there at least for a season also now she gets to be with her cousin elizabeth one of the only people who could probably relate well with her during this season of her life and then the third thing is she would then be able to help elizabeth during her pregnancy, probably doing laundry and preparing meals and and even helping with the delivery. If you skip ahead to verse 56, it says that Mary was there for uh, three months. Gabriel came to Mary, if you look back, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. So six plus three is nine. How long are you pregnant for? Nine months. And so Elizabeth and Mary were together for that third and final trimester. I believe that Mary would, would have been there at the birth of the forerunner of the Messiah, John the baptizer, her son, Elizabeth's son. And, and, and what happens here when Mary first shows up to be with Elizabeth? So she walks into Zechariah and Elizabeth's house and she's calling for Elizabeth. And it says that as she's calling for Elizabeth, John, who is inside of Elizabeth's womb, formerly old and barren and now pregnant by a miracle of God, says, John, leaps, right? The baby leaps. And it's an amazing connection there that we see between uh, John, who's inside of Elizabeth, and Jesus, who is inside 
now of, of Mary. There's an amazing connection because John, as prophesied, would be the, the forerunner to the Messiah, to, to Jesus. Their, their ministries would be inextricably connected to one another. And so the baby leaps when he hears Mary's voice. He, he, he leaps. And then it says that Elizabeth, the mother of, of John, is filled with the Holy Spirit. And she begins to, to prophesy. She begins to declare the, the, the truth of of God, right? And, and, and speaking about something that, that, that she would have otherwise not been able to know. That's what prophecy is, by the way, as you see it in scriptures. Prophecy is declaring the truth of God, one, and then prophecy also can take shape in the form of somebody declaring something that they had no way of knowing, and Elizabeth happens to do both. She declares, first of all, truth. Mary, you are, you are blessed. That is the truth. And she also says, because you have a baby in your womb. And now Mary has not yet told her that she has a baby in her womb. But Elizabeth is able to, to know that because she's prophesying. Mary is blessed for finding God's favor. Mary's also uh, blessed because she has been uh, chosen by God. And she believed Gabriel, unlike Elizabeth's husband, Zechariah. She actually believed Gabriel when he came with the truth. And so... She, she's blessed. Now, Elizabeth says, also, this is important. She says, this baby that's inside of your womb is my Lord. Now, can you imagine how meaningful that would have been for Mary? Put yourself in Mary's shoes. And when we read scripture, we want to put ourselves in the shoes of the other person. Imagine how meaningful that was for Mary to hear her older cousin say, your baby is my Lord. Now, that, that trek from Nazareth to uh, Elizabeth's home uh, in the Judean hill country uh, would have been at least one week's journey. That's, that's quite a journey. If you're pregnant, first of all, you're also uh, a single young girl, that is a very dangerous journey. You know, one thing I want to do when I get to heaven is I want to sit down and talk with Mary's father. Like, how are you serious? You send your girl out to the woods? and you know, it's crazy. I would never do that, right? But she goes on this long journey to be with her. It was an amazing, amazing journey so that she could be with uh, Elizabeth. And imagine all the thoughts that would have been going through Mary's head on this journey. My long car rides are where I do my best thinking. It's also where I get myself in a lot of trouble because my mind is going in places and it's like, oh, that's a big issue. That's going to be really hard. I do my best thinking, but I also get myself into some trouble in my long car rides. Imagine the things that Mary would have been thinking about on that long journey over to the hill country to see her, her cousin. She would have thought about, I imagine, what are my parents thinking about this? Do mom and dad believe me? What are my friends thinking about this? My small town of Nazareth, no more than a couple hundred people. What, what are my neighbors? What are they thinking about? All this shame there. She, she would have thought about, would Joseph ever believe me? She was probably sent away in part by, by Joseph. Will the, will the shame of adultery, even though I didn't commit adultery, but would the shame of adultery stick with me all the days of my life? Will I be stoned to death when I come back? And if I'm not stoned, will I ever have a friend? Will I live perpetually a lonely life? What if I'm a bad mother to God? <laughs> right? How do I discipline my son? <laughs> I don't know. Right? Without a husband, 
How am I ever going to feed this child? I mean, all kinds of stuff would have been going through her head. I can only imagine. But then the second she sees Elizabeth, what does she get? My Lord is in your belly. I didn't even tell you that. Word from the Lord. My Lord is in your belly. And Mary, you are blessed. And so how does Mary respond? Verses 46 through 55. She's filled with joy and she worships. And she sings a a song. I I think about my little daughter, Nora. She's three years old. A lot of times we just catch her singing songs, just making up words. It's the cutest thing ever. She'll stick her arms straight out and just spin around and likes to see her dress. Just picture Mary just full of joy and just making up a song, just full of the Spirit of God and just the overflow of her heart. This comes out. Let's read it, 46 through 56. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich is sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Mary is full of joy at all that's taken place. She could have been full of of worry, right? A lot of us feel that. Your issues that are going on that are right in front of you, you're just worried about them. You're stressed out about them. What does she do? Does she worry? No, she worships. It's an amazing, amazing testimony to us. We do not venerate Mary. We do not pray to Mary. There's nowhere in the Bible. Our Advent theme today is there's a mediator. His name is Jesus. Scriptures say there's one mediator between God and man. That is Jesus. We pray to no person. We pray to no one other than God through Jesus. In the name of Jesus. Right? That is very clear in the, the, the Scriptures. We don't venerate her, but know this. That she is an amazing, amazing testimony of godliness. She's an amazing woman of God. Every Christmas when my kids get their Christmas presents, they just are so pumped up and so full of joy. It's inevitable at some point, the morning of December 25th, my boys are going to start dancing and making up songs. They're just, that's what they do. Whether it's, oh yeah, oh yeah, it's your birthday. They love it. I say, it's Jesus' birthday, by the way. You just get excited, right? And that's what Mary just overflows with song. Amazing woman. She, she worships. Instead of focusing in on her, her challenge, her difficulties, her struggles that are inevitably before her when she returns home. And listen, during Christmas, our issues often get magnified. They're just, they're just more visible, aren't they? During the holidays. They're more in front of us. And we can focus on our issues. We can dwell on our issues. We can play repeat in these things on, in our minds. 
We can magnify our issues and enlarge them to make them bigger than they actually are in the eternal scheme of things. And I do not want to minimize. I do not want to to trivialize what you're going through. I I get it. It's hard. The church is here to journey with you through that. But listen, they're they're struggles. They're they're difficult. they're, They're challenging. But what we get from Mary is we can either magnify our issues or we can magnify our Lord. What does she say at the beginning of her song, verse 46? My soul magnifies who? The Lord. Rather than magnifying her issues, she magnifies her Lord. Rather than focusing in on her struggles, she focuses in on her her Savior. And, And she says, verse 47, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. So, in life's challenges, you can magnify your issues or you can magnify your Lord. What are you doing right now in your own life? We all got issues. We all got them. Don't make the mistake of looking around and saying, oh, mine's bigger than his. Mine's bigger than hers. I got much more reason to be bummed out and ticked off and angry and confused than they do. Don't look around and do that. So what are you doing with your issue? Are you magnifying your issue or are you magnifying your, your Lord? And you know, as, as we begin to round third base and, and close out here, I just want to look at her song. Just, let's just go through it line by line quickly and just watch what Mary does as she puts the, 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 the telescope on, on this amazing, massive God and his work and his, his character. Look at it line by line. So, so in, in verse 47, my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. So what does she do? She magnifies salvation. Even Mary needed a Savior. That's why we don't venerate her. She was sinless. She rec- or sinful. She recognized it as well. I need a Savior too. The child in my belly is my Savior. She magnifies that. I rejoice in God. He is my Savior. He is so good. Verse 48, she magnifies his impartiality. Listen to what she says. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. He wasn't partial to the rich. He didn't go to the rich. He didn't go to someone in a palace. Who does he go to? Who's the long-awaited virgin that's been prophesied for years and years and years before? This, this poor little country, no-name girl, God is impartial. She, she focuses in on how amazing that is. Uh, continuing on. From, for behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. And, and so she magnifies the favor of God. God, you, you have put your favor on me, and people are calling me blessed for generations to come. Why? Because you're good to me. Not because I've earned it, but it's just the grace of God. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble, right? And she's just this humble, humble girl from a no-name town, a nobody on the world's radar screen, and now she's the long-awaited virgin. God, your favorite. She magnifies that. Verse, verse 49, for he who is mighty has done great things for me. She magnifies his might. God is, you are powerful. You are mighty, Whatever your issue is, listen, it's nothing is impossible with God. We saw that last week, right? Whatever your issue is, God can change things. 
There's no guarantee that he will. There is no guarantee in the scripture that he will heal you or heal that loved one or remove that trial. There is no guarantee in the scriptures of that. But he can. And so you pray for it and you be confident in the might of God, right? She magnifies. He is mighty. She goes on. He has done great things for me. She, she magnifies the relationship between the mighty one and her. God, you know me. You acknowledge me. You have a relationship with me. Who am I that you are even mindful of me? The Bible says. She magnifies the relationship that she has with God. Verse, verse 49, um, and holy is his name, right? God, you are holy. You're so otherly. You're so beyond me. You're so good and perfect in every way. And she focuses in on his holiness. Verse, verse 50, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. She, she magnifies his, his mercy. Remember playing the game mercy as a kid? You lock arms with somebody and just try to break their fingers until somebody says mercy. You say, mercy, please don't give me that pain that you're giving me. God is, is a merciful God. He could exercise his wrath. He could pour out the cup of his, his wrath on us for our sin against him which is a bigger deal than we might ever imagine because we have sinned against a perfectly holy God. But who does he pour the cup of his wrath on? Not us. On Jesus, should we trust in him. God is merciful and she acknowledges that. Verse 51 continues. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. She magnifies his strength. Let me ask you, where do you need God's strength displayed in your life right now? Again, Gabriel's word, nothing is impossible with God. He is stronger than you will ever know. She magnifies his strength. Verse 52, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. She magnifies the the grace of God. She would have been disgraced. That's where the word comes from, disgraced. God has been gracious that he would exalt the lowly, give to the lowly what they do not deserve. Right? God, you are so gracious. Look at verse uh, 53. He has filled the hungry with, with good things. She magnifies the provision of God, that God fills the hungry. He gives good gifts to his children, right? He, he provides for us. He will never let you go without. He will always provide for you. Verse 53 uh, continues. And the rich he has sent away empty. Listen, she magnifies the justice of God. We've been talking about justice a lot in our nation right now. God is just. They looked at Rome in their day and age and they were just oppressing the people, taxing the people, ridiculous taxing that they could not possibly afford. Just a poor country, poor people. And Rome is oppressing them so that that, uh, Emperor Herod could, could just... Build, 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 build. To make himself feel good about himself. He's a megalomaniac. And she's confident. Those who are gaining from wickedness, Rome, God, you'll be just to them. Look at verse uh, 54. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. Talks about God's help. God, you will help Israel, your, your servant. Some of you, you need God's help right now. And she says, God, you're able to give it. I could focus on all the areas where I need help, or I could just say, God, you're able to do it. 
and focus in on that. And that's what she does. In verse 55, she closes. She says, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So she's saying, this is just like you said. What does she magnify here? She magnifies the faithfulness of God. You are faithful forever. You said to our fathers that you would do this, and you're doing it, right? You're doing it. Such a beautiful, amazing song that the Mary sings. She's focusing in on the Lord when she could focus in on all these massive challenges that were awaiting her when she returns to Nazareth. She focuses in on the Lord. In verse 56, tells us that Mary remains about three months, final trimester of Elizabeth's pregnancy. And Elizabeth delivers the child John. And Mary has to return And she returns to great challenge. It's going to be really, really difficult. And if you know the rest of the Christmas story, man, does it get difficult. She has to go on yet another journey because she goes home and she finds out that Joseph, because he's of the lineage of David, they now need a census and they have to go all the way back to Bethlehem. That's another long trek. In her final days of her pregnancy, challenge after challenge, she would then have the baby in a town where there is no room for her to have the baby. She would have the baby then in a stable and lay him in a horse or animal feeding trough. But she will endure. And I imagine the reason she endures is because of God's grace to her and because of her continual focus in on the goodness of God. That she is magnifying God and not magnifying her issues. And listen, if you will do that, you will endure. If you will do that, you will endure. And so some of us today, we need to leave with our heads up, telescope, and not with our heads down, microscope. We need to look at the Lord and be amazed at this amazing God who has become small, who has come near to us. Religion says, I work my way up to God. I can try to be good enough and then I'll be right with God. My question is always, how good is good enough? Every other world religious system out there says, if you're good enough, well, how good is good enough? You think God would want you to spend your entire life hoping that you're good enough, hoping that you get into heaven? No. God says, I have done for you. I have descended. I have walked in your shoes. Jesus Christ, I have lived perfectly the life you could never live, whether little sin or massive sins, whether a murderer or a liar. I have not sinned. And yet I die the death of a sinner because the wages of sin is what? Death. This little baby grows up to be a man, lives perfectly, and he dies for us. God has come to us. That is the gospel. That is the good news. That's what I'm calling you to focus on or if you've never done this, to give your life to. To say yes to Jesus. To turn to Jesus. He will forgive your sins. He will make you new. And you will continue to struggle with sin. We all do. But you don't have to live a life of man. I hope, God, I'm good enough. You get to know that God has done for you what you couldn't do for yourself. And you trust in his death, not your death, to pay the price for sin. His life, not your life of goodness. That's the gospel. And Mary, she's just, she's singing about it. She's singing about it. She's magnifying it. And so I want you to leave with your heads up. I want you to leave magnifying the Lord. 
That's, that's the call. That's the plea. Let's put a telescope on God this holiday season and throughout our lives. Let's be a people marked by worship of the Lord. So let me pray. Father, oh, you're so good. You're so gracious. We are so thankful. Yeah, you have descended. You have become small, this big God, so that you could live our lives, live it perfectly, and die the death you didn't deserve. But not just die, resurrect to life, showing that sin and death has no hold on you. God, may we be a people who worship people who magnify Jesus always. Do that in us who are believers. And those here who are not, God, I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would stir their hearts that they today once and for all would turn to Jesus and give their lives fully over to Christ. And so I commit them to you, Lord. Do your work in Jesus' name. Amen.